You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Toddler killed by mold, a defining wake-up call for the housing sector. New voter ID rules freezing young people out of civic life. Who remembers proper bin men? The nostalgia meme rejecting modern progress. And Wandsworth Council reclaims the streets from e-bikes. My name is Rachel Coppell. I work at Open City, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Dinah Bornat. Dinah is an architect, urban designer, and co-director of ZCD Architects. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here and great to see the emphasis on young people in the stories today, so thank you for that. Two-year-old Awab Ishak died in 2020 as a direct result of chronic exposure to black mold in the flat he lived in. Last week, the coroner said the death of an engaging, lively, and endearing child should be a, quote, defining moment for the UK's housing sector. Nearly half a million homes in England experience problems with damp and mold, and last week's verdict has renewed calls for better reporting and management of air quality problems. Awab's parents made multiple complaints to the Housing Association, Rochdale Borough-wide Housing, known as RBH, before he died, and Sky News reported this week that RBH has received more than 100 formal complaints about damp or mold in their properties over the past year. This week, The Guardian reported that Housing Secretary Michael Gove has accused social landlords of, quote, complacency following the toddler's death, adding, quote, it's five years since the Grenfell tragedy. We should have been legislating earlier. Speaking in Parliament this week, Gove said he had written to six social housing providers, Clarion, Southern Housing Group, Onwards Homes, Catalyst Housing, PA Housing, and Johnny Johnson Housing, each of which are accused of mismanagement of varying problems related to cold, damp, mold, leaks, and antisocial behavior. In the wake of the scandal, various social landlords have blamed government funding, which has prioritized affordable home ownership over building houses for social rent. Dinah, this story has been widely covered extensively in the media, sparking a lot of online comment and speeches in Parliament. Why is this such an appalling story, which has caused such shockwaves? It is an absolutely tragic story, and my heart goes out to the parents, the family and the friends of Awab. And I'm appalled when I see the photographs of his flat 
uh, and to know that there are hundreds of thousands of people that still live in, live in conditions like this across the country. It's quite close to home for me because my daughter has got an extremely serious lung condition and I know at the moment she's living in a house with mould on the ceilings in the bedrooms, which worries me constantly. And to be clear, though, she has got a decent landlord in this case, which serves to show what a huge problem this is and it goes beyond bad landlords and housing associations even. We've got an ageing stock which we haven't done enough to upgrade. But ultimately, though, we should be ashamed as a country that we still put people in homes like Awab's, homes that kill a child and that when, like his parents did, they repeatedly complained, they're faced with racism, which we hear is actually hardwired into the housing system. Now, if you follow people like Kwejo Twenaboa on Twitter, he's been uncovering miserable living conditions in homes that are managed by many of the housing associations that myself and other architects in London are working with. It's part of a system we're all involved in and I think we need to do more to show, show that we care about it. Um, I'm going to give a slightly different example and it's got nothing to do with mould, but I visited our Sydney Close scheme recently, which is a collection of social rent homes around a communal garden. And whilst we really did see that the children were enjoying the garden and playing out, in some cases out there all the time, there was nothing for them to play with and it felt really mean. Uh, and the parents had asked me and even offered to fit a swing themselves, but they'd been ignored by the housing association. And I ended up questioning how much they cared about the children living there. So, Catalyst, if you're listening, buy them a swing for Christmas, please. Thank you. That's, a, yeah, really shameful. And this number that we're going to say now for 450,000 homes in England having significant problems with dampened mold, I mean, anecdotally, every single person I know lives in, in I mean, including myself, lives in who is living in rented accommodation, has an issue with mold. So yes, 450,000 homes in England have significant problems with dampened mold, and RBH, which manages 12,500 homes around Manchester, has received more than 100 complaints this year, two years after the tragedy with Awabishak. Why does so much housing in the UK still suffer from these problems, which go back decades? Yeah, and I'm sure you and my daughter and lots of other people are trying to solve the problem themselves with a scrubbing brush and some bleach um but it is a really good question and scrubbing brushes and bleach don't solve the problem um we need to think about the cost of heating and we're looking at a horror story of epic proportions and it's happening right now in one of the richest countries in the world um you need to heat and ventilate your home properly um and that's very difficult for people to do and this is going to get worse so we've had time to sort this out it hasn't come out of the blue and it's worth going back to the Decent Homes programme, which was introduced in 2000 by the then Labour government. And um, at the time was intended that all social housing would be brought up to a decent standard by 2010, by which that would mean a safe and secure property and definitely not one that would kill a child. But after 10 years... Um, in 2010, although the programme had led to improvements in over one million homes, it wasn't complete by any means and the incoming coalition government shifted much of the funding towards new development. So the Decent Home Programmes has been up for review for years and the government is now finally looking at the issue again and calling for the private rental sector to meet these basic standards as well. This seems sensible and more so when you realise that the scale of the problem is far higher in the private sector, as you mentioned, so clearly something must be done. But I question the mechanism and whether local authorities, housing associations and private landlords are set up to deal with the scale of the problem. 
which, let's face it, can't wait anymore. We can't wait another 10 years. Uh, but the role of enforcement is going to fall to local authorities to carry out and their budgets have been slashed. So that's very hard to imagine that it will be achieved in those terms. And it's a mess. And the blame is with, I think, successive governments who've not provided enough and indeed decent enough homes for this country. Um, poor housing is a public health crisis and it's interesting to see the NHS trialling a scheme in Gloucestershire that pays for some patients' heating bills in full and that's already proved to have reduced costs for the health service, never mind vastly improving these people's quality of lives. But it's actually even making people angry and I read uh, Helen Barnard's tweet just this week, who's an associate director at the Joseph Roundtree Society, and rightly saying how disgusted she was to see that the health service is picking up the pieces of a failed housing sector. So we really do need to make sure that Awab's death was not in vain, and we need to completely rethink the sector, I think. Michael Gove has taken a strong public stance by naming and shaming what he says are some of the biggest culprits. On the other hand, the housing associations say they cannot afford to build more social rent homes following the coalition funding cuts of 2010. That year, councils and housing associations built 30,000 social rent homes. Now that figure has fallen to fewer than 5,000. Dinah, it has been said there is a lot of passing the buck going on here. As you said before, the blame really lies with the government, these successive governments. This has been an active destruction of public housing over the last 12 years by the government. They have an ideological preoccupation with home ownership, which seems to involve, bizarrely, periodically knocking at the door of housing associations with the right to buy threat, only to be reminded that it will never work. What they have been able to do, though, is vastly cut the funding for housing associations, as you say, who are now, and I might have to agree with Robert Jenrick on this, moving further away from their charitable aims. But this is a product of his government's own making. And yes, housing associations are becoming more and more like private developers in everything but name. We feel that as architects, I think. Uh, but they do now need to provide what we all know is not truly affordable housing by cross-subsidising it on private sales. And I think the tragedy of this is that working class people are at the mercy of the market and in a perpetual cycle of demolition and rebuild, sometimes twice or more in their own lifetimes, which is frankly not fair. So, I mean, we could spend all day talking about land value and planning reform, but with an over-reliance on the market, this is just a failure to provide housing and one that I think lies squarely at the feet of successive governments. And I include the previous Labour government in this from Thatcher's right to buy onwards, um, who also didn't fund housing in the way that it needed to be. So we really do need to fund now good net zero, social housing, and not sell it off back into the private sector. I think we've proved over the last 20 years that expecting the market to solve the housing crisis just doesn't work. The much-anticipated details of the government's voter ID scheme have been released, leading to concern that younger voters without a passport or driver's license will find it comparatively harder to have their voices heard at the ballot box. The full details of which IDs will be accepted at polling stations, which have been released on the government website, reveal that many more affordable forms of identification, including travel cards, are available only to older people. For example, an over-60s Oyster card will now be accepted at the polling station, whereas an over-18 Oyster card will not. 
the Electoral Reform Society, which campaigned to have forms of ID, such as student IDs, library cards, and bank statements, made accessible forms of identification, expressed their disappointment at the government's last-minute decision to repeal their suggested amendments. Jessica Garland, director of policy and research at the Society, wrote, quote, these options would have provided an important backstop for voters who don't have more expensive forms of identity documents like passports and who may not have been able to access the voting certificate option. The new identification rules will come into place for the local elections taking place in May of next year. Dinah, what's going on here? The government have been accused of gerrymandering and legalized voter suppression. Is this another example of young people being frozen out of democratic dialogue? Uh, yes, Yes, this is voter suppression. You can't call it anything else. I don't know how it got past the Equalities Act for a start. Um, so just to spell it out, if you want to vote next spring, you'll need to bring a passport with you or a driver's licence. And if you don't have one of those, and don't forget they cost money to buy, many people don't, you'll have to rock up at your local town hall and apply for a voter ID. This is simply going to make it hard for lots of people to vote full stop. And when I was thinking about this story, I found a really interesting parallel here between this one and the previous one in what I'm about to compare it to. So both stories here were triggered by the death of children and the death of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman by their school caretaker led to the introduction of national safeguarding checks. Bear with me for a second. The deaths of two children... And I do a lot of these DBS checks as a volunteer for a charity and I know how important it is to do them and I think of the children we're safeguarding in more ways than just the checks in doing so. But what I've learned from carrying out these checks is, and I do them a lot with young people, is how hard it is for young people to get together all the documentation that they need, even when you give them as much support as you can. So I know firsthand how hard it will be for young people to find their passport, their driver's licence, and worse, try and get themselves a voter ID if they haven't got any of those. And I know that simply they won't. a lot of them won't do it. They will become effectively disenfranchised. So back to the connection, the data and barring system, the DBS system, makes sense. We only have to think about Holly and Jessica and the thousands of other children who were abused and we have to think about what we're doing to work against it. But what is the actual risk here? Voter fraud is less than minuscule. You're talking about something like 20 people convicted last year. 20 people across the whole country. It's not a crisis. This is not something that should precipitate new legislation. It's yet more of this government's ideological obsession. It's like they've run out of shock stories to tell us. And don't forget, it's the government who delighted in so-called bonfires of red tape and they've just created a new mountain of the stuff. If fewer young people exercise their votes, what could be the impact for our built environment in a city like London? Well, we need to take young people's needs into account in policy and to have them as active members of society. And we need to be talking to them as voters and prospective voters. From a selfish perspective, we're going to need them to care for us in our old age and we're going to be hoping for a degree of compassion and empathy to go along with that. I'm not looking forward to a generation of part-disenfranchised, angry young people who've been turned off by a democratic system. But I think, interestingly, when I look at the ONS figures, the number of people holding a passport is actually higher in London than across the rest of the country. So we should watch carefully what, where the legislation has an impact. 
But statistics aside, from a moral perspective, involving young people is just the right thing to do. They're part of society. They're as important as anybody else. And as they regularly point out to me, they're going to be here a lot longer than we are. So we do a lot of work with young people. It's the bedrock of our practice and it enriches everything we do. Working with them gives us an insight into local areas that you just can't capture from walking around and from just talking to adult residents. They're sharp, entertaining, clever and enthusiastic. They tell us stories that we use as designers to make better places. They talk about neurodiversity. They talk about gender, about catcalling, about stopping to smell the flowers. I could write a book about it and, in fact, I'm going to write a book about it. But working with them, I should just say, is a highlight of my week. And all the teams, the design teams and the clients that we work with, they say the same thing. It's just wonderful. But that's me being selfish again. We should work with young people simply because it's just the right thing to do. On Christmas Day 2019, a meme reading, Who Remembers Proper Bin Men? was posted on a Facebook page called Memory Lane UK. This fascinating cultural artifact was dissected by Dan Hancocks in a thought-provoking Guardian long read, which went viral this week. The black and white images of men donning flat caps and donkey jackets on a backdrop of post-war Britain drew a huge amount of interest on the page and, Hancocks writes, is part of a broader wave of nostalgia sweeping the online platform. Memory Lane UK and its rival Facebook pages have just shy of 2 million members, more, Dan points out, than the official pages for Labour, the Conservative, and the Lib Dems combined. In fact, an image of three butter knives has drawn more than 1,300 comments, a level of engagement few public figures or brands ever achieve. These pages are brimming with rose-tinted recollections. People refer to Back then, an unspecified period somewhere between the 1950s and 1980, when people were, quote, stronger, more polite, hardworking, and perhaps more importantly, happy. The nostalgia for the old days of bin collectors without proper health and safety apparel has even been picked up by tabloid papers in the present day who have led campaigns criticizing modern refuse collectors for following workplace safety rules unlike their forebearers. Hancock's writes, quote, the proper bin men memes are a potent distillation of a sentiment common to contemporary British politics and culture where politicians have all but given up offering a positive vision of the future and where the idea of what constitutes progress is bitterly contested. As Britain plunges further into political and social uncertainty, the rich and powerful seem to be encouraging people to suck it up and channel the hardships of yore. In Parliament, the Blitz has been referenced 37 times since 2020, which is just 11 shy of the 48 citations when the Blitz was actually happening. I always kind of maintained that people are obsessed with the Blitz spirit because it was a, a brief period of time when Britain wasn't the villain in, in history. Um, Dinah, in this article, Dan coins the term binmanism to describe the type of better-in-my-day nostalgia where people acknowledge that despite times being tougher in the past, they were somehow also better. Why is this such a powerful force within people when they get older? I love this story. It's got the arc of black and white nostalgia through to social media memes, and it makes me picture boring old people sitting on their sofas remembering when they had fun when they were younger and how their fun was all about personal hardship. It's the stories we tell each other about our own histories, this one-upmanship, the self-indulgence, the ludicrousness of sounding like the famous Monty Python sketch about getting up half an hour before you go to bed and licking the lake clean before you go to work at the mill. 
But yes, these memories are an incredibly powerful force. They kind of identify your tribe as you get older and start to feel less relevant. They paint the picture for you. Um, what this article is talking about is the nostalgia for a degree of suffering, which I think is really interesting, um, as if people don't suffer today, but that's not the point. And there's an awful lot of issues explored in this long read, which I think you should read. It's about machismo, it's about nationalism and racism. For me, what it highlights is the power of nostalgia to evoke strong feelings. But nostalgia and anecdote are not reliable. And really interestingly, it's where I started out with our research into child-friendly cities. Back when the wonderful Playing Out initiative came to London, there was a lot of anecdote flying around, a lot of children don't play out anymore and absolutely no data to back up this claim. I had a hunch that children did play out as I was seeing it on the estates near me where they had space to get away from cars and places on their doorstep. And it turns out I was right. In some places, children play out an awful lot and much of that is to do with the design of housing. Do you think this type of nostalgia is important when it comes to our built environment? Could it explain why so little is being done to properly insulate old homes or introduce modern double glazing? I think it is really important, um, and but it can also be used, and often is, in a really backwards way, preventing change. And it's used to put young people in their place. They can't disagree they weren't there. It's like a party you were never invited to. But I like to harness nostalgia. Um, and we can all be nostalgic and teenagers can be nostalgic for their own childhoods, which is interesting. And I, the way I do this is I often ask people uh, to give me their favourite playing out memory at the beginning of a project that we might be working on. And it gets me the chance to find out a bit more about them, but also to prove a point because it's a real leveller of a question and it reveals the extent to which people take risks as children and still do and quite often get injured back to this hardship in their favorite playing out memory it often involves injury and I'm talking hospital level injury sometimes so but to give you an example of one and thankfully one that didn't involve an injury recently a woman perhaps in her 50s or 60s told us her favorite memory was going over the top on a swing and I literally stood there open mouth because I never realized that anyone had actually ever done it I thought it was a kind of imaginary thing but sure enough she had and that's just a great moment when you hear these kinds of memories and um, it's really part of a wider conversation about play and our own sense of agency and well-being we quickly find out that the best play doesn't usually happen in playgrounds and gets everyone thinking about what a real child-friendly city might look like. It evokes really deep-seated and important memories that are central to us as humans. And I sometimes ask people, what if I took that memory away from you? Would that be okay? And I'll get this horrified look from the person and they'll say, absolutely not. So I ask them, don't you want young people today to have those same sort of experiences? And the answer, of course, is yes. So then we start to think about how we can do that. And it really does shift the conversation dramatically. So, yes, nostalgia is great. It's brilliant. It needs to be harnessed in the right way. One plucky South London council is reclaiming the pavements from discarded lime bikes following claims they are blocking routes in the borough. The Evening Standard and Wandsworth Times reported this week that Wandsworth Council has begun seizing dockless e-bikes found obstructing walkways and forcing wheelchairs and pushchairs to move onto the roads. This comes after the council called upon the electric bike hire company to take urgent action against dump bikes clogging up pathways. 
Speaking to the BBC, Hal Stevenson, Lyme's senior public affairs manager, said it was, quote, critical that the bikes don't negatively impact other people's journeys. He added the firm had proposed several solutions, including requiring users to take a photo of how they had left the bike, which can then be verified by the company. There is currently no deal between Wandsworth Council and Lyme for where the e-bikes can be parked, which is part of the reason why people are riding them into the borough and leaving them on pavements as, unlike the non-electric Santander bikes, they don't need docking stations. Moving forward, the council has agreed to negotiate parking bays for the bikes. Dinah, what do you make of this story? Wandsworth Council seem to be taking bold steps to safeguard public space. Is this the right thing to do? I think so, but I'm going to come down on both sides of this story because... Yeah, absolutely right. It's awful when these bikes block pavements and it's hard enough to get around on the pavement as it is for all of us and particularly for people who've got mobility issues. Oliver Lord, head of Clean Cities UK, called the council out on picking the wrong fight, responding to the news that Simon Hogg, the council leader, met with London Mayor Sadiq Khan to discuss the problem bikes. Lord tweeted, quote, Scenario, you're leader of a great borough, but with some of the highest pollution in the UK and a noisy, dangerous urban motorway in your town centre, and yet you meet the person with power and money to change this and want to prioritise talk on cracking down on e-bike sharing firms instead. Dinah, does Oliver have a point? I think he does have a point. (laughs) So to give what might sound like a complete counter-argument to my previous one, I think we should have tonnes more of these bikes. In fact, I think they should be completely free for young people as a kind of entry drug to sustainable transport. We could get young people excited about getting around London on a bike and having fun. Some young people really do need help with their mobility, so it would really help them. But in general, and I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek here, many young people like to spend a surprising amount of time sitting down which must hold some form of evolutionary importance. So I think we should exploit that and offer them unlimited e-bike experience whilst slowly introducing them to the experience of moving their legs and other limbs around more frequently. The car industry would be furious, which is exactly what we should be aiming for. I've also, I've talked time and time again on this show about how scared I am to bike in the city and how I had to give it up when I moved here because it's there's so many cars and they're so aggressive. And I even saw someone almost get hit this morning, which was terrifying. And I feel like if biking was more accessible and more people were encouraged to do it we'd have less cars and then I could get by (laughs) just making it about me now I'll get back on a bike in the age of climate catastrophe we're increasingly beginning to recognize the importance of active travel how else can councils make steps to encourage this More e-bike docking on the street, lots of it. Taking up car parking spaces with lots of e-bike provision and non-e-bike provision. But at the same time, we need to fully protect the walkers, and that includes wheelchair users, from the wheeled who move along faster. And that goes for all ages. Everyone is scared of being run over by a scooter. So we need to get the scooters and the segways and the bikes properly segregated from walkers as well as from cars. And I was just thinking, if I was running for mayor, I'd make the e-bike scheme my number one priority and I'd use it to persuade young people to register to vote and then vote for me. (laughs) Selfishly, I'd be aiming for a generation of happy, well-housed young people who, when I got too old to cycle around on my own, would be able to cycle me around town on one of those rickshaws with seats at the front so I could still feel the wind in my hair and wave at my friends. I speak with experience here as I've been taken on one of these around Sefton Park in Liverpool. 
I'm going to be one of those old people. My children will be delighted to hear. Anyway, silly futures aside, like all the others, this issue is in fact about fairness and the degree of equity we want for our city. It's what drives me to keep doing what I'm doing. That's incredible. Thank you so much. So we're going to segue into our culture section. Um, So coming up on the cultural calendar, we've got London Modern 22. It's a new cultural festival taking place on December 10th. The festival will celebrate modernism in all its forms, from buildings to fashion to art and design. It's at the recently refurbished Waltham Forest Town Hall, Lots of speakers are going to be at the event, including many previous guests from the London, such as John Grinrod, Neil Chasseur, and Charles Holland. Next up, coming onto bookshelves soon, On the Street by Edwin Heathcote. It is a new book featuring 101 essays and personal recollections by Edwin Heathcote, another previous guest on our show. In this book, Eddie looks at the cultural impact of street furniture using photography by the likes of Vivian Mayer, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Helen Levitt, etc., making the case that they have become indispensable features of our cityscape. And it's available for pre-order now. Would make a great Christmas gift. Speaking of Christmas, we have the London Live Christmas special coming up. It's our very own Christmas review of the year happening on Tuesday, the 13th of September at 7 p.m. in the Design District, our wonderful home. Our guest panel includes Kath Slesser, Ruth Lang, Peter Bloxham, and Sunny Malhatra. Tickets are free and available to book now. Just go to our website, www.open-city.org.uk. And Dinah, what is on your cultural radar for December? (laughs) Well, sticking to the family theme, my nephew's part of a fantastic circus, the Revel Puck Circus, if you want to look it up, who are putting on a show in Beckenham Place Park, which you may well know is part of Lewisham, who have been the borough of culture this year. And the show is on from the 15th of December to the 8th of January. I've been to a few of these. They're fantastic. There are no animals. There's just lots of fun and acrobatics. So get yourself down to that. And then a kind of fabulous end of days, but fantastic party at the Museum of London to mark its uh, temporary closure and last days uh, in London Wall before it moves across to Smithfield. It seems very fitting that they are having an enormous party with DJs and children are welcome and it's going to go through the night on the weekend of the 3rd and 4th of December and, I mean, what better way to say goodbye and hold on to those memories before the new museum opens in a couple of years in Smithfield and I just think this is a great client to work with. We've been doing some work with them. In fact, we put on London's biggest play street for them to think about how the built environment could be better and the, the to think about how the public realm about around the new museum could be better for children and I love the fact that this is called London's greatest weekend so get along to that as well great thank you so much and Dinah where can our listeners go to learn more about your projects well at the moment they can find me on twitter as long as that may last um at D Bornat, so that's D B O R N A T. 
You can follow us on Instagram, that's ZCD underscore architects, and we're also on Twitter. And you can go to our website, which is www.zcdarchitects.co.uk. Excellent. Wow, thanks so much. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.